Should we pray for you, Lucy? So Lord, we thank you so much for Lucy. I thank you for the way you've been speaking to her through your word and this story tonight. May you just bring it alive as we listen and hear. And may you help us go away with the right challenge. May you touch our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Is this one of yours? I'll leave it here, it's fine. Good evening. Hello. How is everyone? Are we awake? Not sure what time it is. No, it's still light. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's exciting. I'm wondering if um, some people are about to arrive or um, to church at seven o'clock. We'll see, won't we? We'll find out. I hope you have had a good day so far. Um, Mothering Sunday can be a fun day. It's an exciting day because we are now over halfway through Lent. Um, and traditionally in the church, and I took this to heart very much today, anything that you give up during Lent, you get um, Mothering Sunday, Mother's Day off. Okay? If you didn't know that, you know that now, so go home, indulge later tonight, um, which is what I've been doing all day. And I needed a bit of a lie down, so never mind. Mm, enough about me. Um, it is halfway through Lent, and it's also that time when we start really focusing, as these guys have just been saying, we start really uh, turning our focus towards Easter, towards what is about to happen in the next uh, three weeks. Okay, Three weeks' time, we're going to have full immersion baptisms here on Easter Day. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. But I don't know about you, Easter for me is a really predictable time of year because I know which church services I go to and I know I'm going to have Easter egg hunts with my nieces and nephews. It's going to be a lot of fun, a bit of carnage. I know that um, my mum is going to cook lamb on Easter day. She always does every year. Anyone else have those kind of Easter traditions? Yeah, some of us, yeah? got lots of things to look forward to and what Easter eggs you're going to get. I don't get as many as I used to, unfortunately. It's probably a good thing. Anyway, we have our Easter traditions and there is an element of predictability about this time of year. But I want us to think for a second about what Easter, the, the month of Easter, we're about to start April tomorrow, what did that month look like 2,000 years ago or thereabouts? Do you think the disciples had any clue at this point what the next month would look like? That the guy they'd been following Jesus for the last three years was going to be betrayed by one of them. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be tortured. He was going to be crucified, buried. And then he was going to rise from the dead. He was going to spend time with them, but then leave them again and promise to send the Holy Spirit until he returned at a moment in the future. Do you think that they had any clue, three weeks out from Easter Day, what their lives were going to look like? Probably not. And I think those early followers of Jesus, um, having witnessed so many things happen in such a short space of time, were probably expecting that Jesus' return was also going to happen very, very quickly indeed. You know, they'd gone through Jesus being killed, rising, ascended. That all happened in such a short space of time. Surely Jesus was going to come back quickly too. But Jesus didn't come back quickly. And we're still waiting for Jesus' return, aren't we? We're still here waiting, expecting Jesus' return. And so 
The Bible actually has quite a lot to say about what we do in this in-between time. And the parable we're about to look at from, um, you can find it in Matthew and in Luke's gospel, but we're going to look in Matthew's gospel, is actually addressing that question of what do we do? What do the disciples do? What do we do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back? So we're going to look um, in Matthew chapter 25, starting verse 14. If you've got a Bible on you, if you didn't grab one on the way in, the host team I'm sure can get you one there at the back. If anyone puts their hand up, I'm sure someone can get them one. But we're going to look at Matthew 25, and it's going to be on the screen as well. So I'm going to read, starting at verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one who, with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever, ha uh, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And who does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we're there for that question, aren't we? What do we do with ourselves while we're waiting for Jesus to return? So, in this story, we may have heard this story several times before, we are left with that suggestion that we need to behave a little bit like those first two servants. They're the ones who are given those talents, five talents, two talents. Now, talent is the word in the Greek that's used, and it's used to describe a massive amount of money, probably the equivalent to about 5,000 days wages. So imagine what you earn a day if you work times it by 5,000, that's a big bag of gold, a big talent, that was the word that was used in the Greek. 
We're supposed to be like those servants. And when we've been given talents, either money or we, we take that word talent now to mean um, our skills, our innate giftings, our talents, don't we? We are supposed to use uh, what we've been given for God's kingdom to be fruitful, um, to increase God's kingdom, to work for it, so that when Jesus comes back, we will give that account of what we have done with what we have been given. So we need to be like those first two servants. Um, We need to not be like that third servant. Now let's think about that third servant for a second. He did nothing with the talent that he'd been given that bag of gold that he'd been given, and he simply returns it to his master when he returns. And he does that. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he not put that money to good use? Why would he not use the talent that he had been given wisely? Why do we do that sometimes too? Well, I think the... um, The answer to that is in his reply to the master. He says, doesn't he? He says, I knew that you were a harsh man. I knew you planted, uh, you, you you gathered where you hadn't planted. You basically took more than was yours. I knew you were unfair. I was scared of you. I was afraid, so I did nothing. I was afraid of you. I did nothing. Out of fear, he didn't act. And we can be a little bit like this, can't we, when we're afraid. When we're afraid, we do nothing. We're petrified. We're like, I can't make a decision. I'm too scared to get it wrong. And we can apply that to God sometimes. If we think God is the kind of God who will beat us over the head when we get things wrong, God who is going to judge us, God who is going to condemn us, God who um, just tallies up our mistakes. When we think of God like that, we can't risk things because we're too afraid. We can't take a step outside our comfort zone because we're worried we'll get it wrong and we're scared of the consequences of what we do. We'll never grow in our gifts and skills and talents if we are afraid. But that image of God is wrong, isn't it? We've heard loads of stories this term about how God is gracious, God is generous. God goes to the ends of the earth for us because of his amazing love for us. And God gives good things to us. God is generous. God wants us to celebrate all of those amazing gifts we've been given. So God is generous. God gives us good things. And I wonder this evening, what are we going to do with what we've got? What are we going to do with what we've been given? Maybe there are skills or talents or gifts that you have been given by God. How are you using them for furthering God's kingdom? Do you even know what they are? They might be really obvious gifts and skills and talents, but they might be less obvious ones. What about the gift of hospitality, the gift of administration? along with other gifts like teaching or preaching or spiritual gifts. Maybe for some of us, we are economically gifted. We're financially doing okay. We don't live hand to mouth. We've got savings, we've got mortgages, we've got investments. By the world's standards, we're wealthy. What are we doing with what we've got? Are we stewarding those resources for God's kingdom? Or are we putting our own stability our own well-being ahead of pursuing that kingdom. Now, 
This is something that I've often been challenged about because I know that for me, and maybe this is true for others here this evening, I know that for me, my attitude towards God can often be tracked alongside my attitude towards financial giving. When I'm in a good place with God, my giving is easier. I'm more generous. I'm more keen to give away what God has given me. When I'm not in a good place with God, I become a bit tight-fisted. I become a bit selfish. I want to keep more for me. Maybe you're in that similar situation. And I was really challenged by this a few years ago because I, my income, I was in a job where my income went up every year and I knew it would go up every year. And when your income goes up, at first you're like, oh, this is quite nice. I've got a bit more money, makes paying the bills easier or whatever. Then after a while, you're like, I need that money, actually. I managed to survive last year on less, but this year I, I, I definitely need more. I'm spending more on myself. It's lovely. I'm enjoying it. And I was worried that I was becoming quite consumeristic and quite selfish in my attitude towards giving and towards money. So what I did was I committed to uh, living on minimum wage for a year and giving the rest of my money away. I wanted to identify with people who didn't have as much as me, but also I was really um, excited by the possibility of what a life of generosity would look like. And actually, it was really, really challenging. It was a hard year um, in lots of ways because I knew that I'd given myself this, um, this challenge, and I think that was actually from God. But actually, it was also really exciting, because I had some friends in my, in my life group who, who were really struggling financially, and they shared their struggles with us. And I thought, this is great, this is so exciting. And I, I, got, um, I got a big brown envelope, and I wrote their names in block capital so they wouldn't know it was from me. And I posted it through their letterbox and ran away. And then they came to our life group the next week and were like, God's answered our prayers. And you know what? Yes, he has. And God has used me as part of that. God has used me as part of furthering his kingdom. And that was so exciting. Because when you have something precious and you get to give it away to people who really need it and really appreciate it, you get to be part of everything that God is calling us to. And that was amazing. And I'm challenged today by how what I did then. Would I do the same? Would you do that? Would you um, let God challenge you in terms of how you're using your talents? And often we talk about talents not just financially. We talk about our time. And for us, often our time can be the thing that is most difficult to give away. Our, Our time, our treasure, our talent. Those are things that God wants us to give and steward for his kingdom. So that's the parable of the talents. Let's use what our generous God has given us well. Let's be faithful stewards. However, I was, um, I was doing some research for this sermon uh, this evening, and I came across an article which was all about uh, rules for, it was entitled something like Rules for Preaching on the Parables of Jesus. And I was like, excellent, I could do with that. I like rules. I'm good at following rules. Let's see what these rules are. I'm going to share them with you, and you can tell me if you think I've kept these rules or I've done a terrible job. Okay? So here are some rules um, for preaching on parables. They're going to come up on the slide. Now, rule number one. If you press it, it'll come up. Okay, rule number one. Don't assume that God is necessarily one of the characters in the parable. Okay, don't assume it's God. Fine, rule number two. Don't assume that the parable is, telling you, is trying to tell you how to improve your life. 
That's interesting. Do we do that? Do we not? Next, rule number three. Don't assume that you're the goody in the story and other people are the baddies. Right, we kind of see where this is going. Okay, interesting. Rule number four. If you feel perfectly confident and untroubled while, while expounding the parable, you're probably doing it wrong. Good. Okay, rule number five. If your sermon on the parable leaves people with nothing to hope for, you're probably doing it wrong. It's getting a bit challenging, isn't it? Okay, last one, rule number six. Finally, if you've preached a lousy sermon, just remember, as long as the parable was read, uh, read aloud before you started, it won't be a total loss. <laughs> so there you go, I can go sit down now. No. But, um, so I was, I was thinking about that, I was reflecting on that and um, challenged actually by some of those uh, rules there. And it got me to thinking a little bit. It got me to thinking, have I interpreted and have we interpreted this parable and other parables Jesus tells too quickly? Have we not quite looked hard enough, deep enough at what is really going on here and what Jesus is trying to say? Have we made too quick an assumption? And I have some few, a few questions about this parable. If you've got your Bible in, open in front of you, you might look at it and think, actually, I've got a few questions about this too. And I want us to look at those questions this evening and have a bit of a think about them. Because it strikes me as quite odd that the, the, guy who, the rich guy who goes away um, in this story, he seems quite harsh to me. He seems quite judgmental. He seems quite uh, fierce and angry and possibly unjust. And to me, that doesn't track with my, in my idea of who God is, what God is like, how God is a God of mercy and justice. And Matthew's gospel, as all the gospels do, time and time again, talk about the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Does it seem to add up with what is going on here? And also, if you think about this story, it could be a story about how the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Again, I don't think that's God's kingdom way, and it leaves me a little bit confused and with some unanswered questions. Also, why do we always assume that the man or the master in a story is God? After all, Jesus described himself as one who came to serve, to take the lowest place. And Jesus also promised to be with us always. But this story is a story of a man who disappears off for a long time and comes back. So I'm left with a few questions about what is going on here. And also, when we think about the context in which this story uh, would have been told, there are other questions it raises too, because Matthew um, is writing uh, a story of Jesus talking to his, uh, his followers and crowds of people, and these people would have been poor, working-class people. They would have been people who were oppressed by Roman occupation that had gone on for a long time, oppressed by people who were rich, making money off the backs of poor people, they would have been oppressed by um, the Roman Empire and anyone who colludes with it, making their money through unjust, uh, unjust means and injustices. So when people heard a story about this amazing amount of money, such incredible wealth, 
what they would have heard was that these were people who were powerful, yes. These were people who were also corrupt and oppressive. So I want to make a suggestion this evening, and please hear me, this is just a suggestion. But I want to suggest that there is a totally different way of reading this parable. Because often when we look at Bible stories, not just this one, but other Bible stories, especially in the Old Testament, we tend to, um, well, no, not just the Old Testament, New Testament as well, we often with Bible stories tend to think of them as prescriptive. They tell us what to do and how to live our lives. Okay, so we get this with a story like this. Okay, so what does this mean for me? How should I interpret it? What does it mean? How should I live my life? Now, with some Old Testament stories, we go, clearly I'm not supposed to go out and cause bloodshed because there are a lot of battles, a lot of violence in the Bible. I'm not supposed to do that, but we still think, should I be like that character? How should I be like that, that character in the Bible story there? I need to be like them in some way because why else would this story be in the Bible? But I want to suggest that instead of reading some of these stories, and this one in particular, prescriptively, we need to read it descriptively. We need to see this story as a story of what happens in life, what happens in the world. What happens when human beings are left to their own devices? What happens when we don't put God at the center? God isn't first in our lives. So instead of this being a story about God handing out talents and lots of money, maybe this story is actually about what happens when wealthy people give away money to other people and ask them to make more money. What if it is literally supposed to be a map about a rich man who goes on a journey and puts his servants in charge of his money and tells them to go and make more? And tasked with making more money, they do it in the way they know how. They do it by oppressing people, by not paying them a fair wage, by corruption, through loopholes, through tax evasion. Couldn't this story be read in the 21st century? Can this also be a story today about CEOs uh, getting paid thousands of times what their workers get paid, or massive bonuses for those at the top, and a huge disparity between those at the bottom? Can this be a story about the haves versus the have-nots in our lives too? This parable seems to perfectly describe what happens in life. Those who make money, however they do it, get rewarded. Those who don't, don't. And so I want to look, not, not at those first two servants who, who follow that system, who do what they're told, but the third servant, and look at what he does. He takes his talent, buries it in the ground, and gets punished for it. And so maybe, actually, what this third servant is doing is seeing the system for what it really is. He's seeing that if he is going to do what he's supposed to do, he is going to have to participate in corruption and oppression and, and a system that is not right to. And he refuses. He says to his master, I know you're a harsh man, and I don't want anything to do with it, actually. You can have your money back. I imagine that servant was under no illusions as to what would happen if he did that. He was cast out. He knew 
that if he was going to stand up, if he was going to not participate in that system, he was going to suffer the consequences. He would make that sacrifice in order not to participate in what was going on there. So in this interpretation, Jesus is giving people an illustration of how the world is and sometimes the fact that we need to stand up against what is wrong. We need to be willing to sacrifice our own comfort, our own security for the greater good and not condone oppression when we see it around us, maybe in our workplaces, maybe in, in other areas of life and society. Nonviolent resistance is a hallmark of being a Christian. Jesus modelled it, didn't he? We're going to come to Good Friday soon, a day when Jesus showed nonviolent resistance to people when they beat him, they spat at him, they tortured him, and he didn't open his mouth. And Christians throughout the, uh, the years, from Paul to uh, the great civil rights activists of the 20th and 21st centuries. We've got pictures of people like Rosa Parks and the bus boycott in Alabama, or Aisha Evans, who stood up during the Black Lives Matter uh, campaign against police brutality. People like this are people who model what Jesus is calling us to do in standing up and refusing to collude with oppression and injustice. And maybe... Maybe in these people, not those with the most power, but with the least, we see Jesus. Now, I've given you two radically different interpretations of this parable this evening. And I don't know which one you want to believe. Maybe there is something here for you today about using what God has given you wisely for his kingdom. Maybe there is something here today about standing up against injustice and oppression, even if it involves sacrifice. Both of those themes have plenty of biblical and backing and basis for them. I don't know which version of, these, of this story Jesus wanted us to follow. I don't know which one is more accurate to what he intended and I've come to realize, actually, that that's okay. It's okay not to know all the answers because Jesus told subversive stories and often didn't give explanations. And I think that's because he wants us to dig deep, to wrestle, to ask questions, to be challenged, and to let these stories live in our lives. And that's the point I really want to make this evening, and I'm going to end with this, is that asking questions is sometimes more important than getting answers. That grappling and wrestling with the Bible is so important because we see the complexity and the nuances of life reflected in it in a way that if we have a short, pithy answer, oh, that parable is about that, tick, I know that, move on. We'll never get anywhere. We'll never see our lives told through the Bible stories. We'll never see the understanding, the, um, the complexity that they have in a way that can bring new revelation, new insight into the situations that we find ourselves in. And these parables that we've been looking at for the last few months are such rich stories. They're multi-layered stories. They can't be reduced down. They can't be just, uh, just ticked off like you've done a test and you've passed it. And so whether you've heard a sermon on a parable one time or a hundred times, actually there's always more that can be discovered and learned and revealed to us. 
Jesus always wants us uh, to come to him and to find him in new and fresh ways. And we need to open ourselves up to what he has to say to us. And so I started with that, that point that we are still waiting for Jesus' return. And what are we supposed to do while we're waiting? Well, I think what we are supposed to do is to ask God by his Holy Spirit to come and speak to us to reveal himself to us through his word, through these stories, through our life experiences, and to grapple with and wrestle with what he is trying to say to us so that God's word can be born in us and can live in us more fully, more deeply, and more meaningfully. So I'm going to finish just there, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give us a moment's quiet. And I'd love us to use this time to ask God to speak to us by his spirit, to speak to us about what this story is trying to teach us today. What is it saying about who God is? What is it saying about who we are in response to who God is? And after a moment's quiet, I'm going to pray for us. And then I think the band are going to come up and lead us in a time of response. So let's just have a moment of quiet before I pray.